Hello everyone and thank you for joining us today for the latest Autocar Business Live webinar. My name is Mark Tishaw and I am the editor of Autocar. Today I'm delighted to be joined by the chairman and CEO of Bentley Motors, Adrian Hallmark. Adrian, thank you for joining us today. We're only just over a month into 2022 and already Bentley has made some incredible announcements so we're all looking forward to hearing more about those major today. We've also got my colleague Steve Cropley on the call. Hello, Steve. Hello. And just before we start, uh, a bit of housekeeping. Please do remember to send in any questions uh, you may have for Adrian. They all pop up on my screen in the background here, and I'll do my best to get around as many of them as possible. Uh, thank you in advance for sending them in. So, Adrian, you announced last Wednesday that the first battery electric vehicle will be made by Bentley in Crewe. Was it ever not going to be made in Crewe? Um, there's always a chance. I mean, as um, you may be aware, being a part of a group like Volkswagen is a great advantage. But in this transition period between combustion engine vehicles and battery electric vehicles, there's even more pressure than there has been in the past to not invest in more infrastructure and to fully utilise capacities and facilities that are already there. So clearly, Crew has been the birthplace of many Bentleys since 75 years now. And it's our commitment to maximise the number of cars that we bring here. We want everyone to be here, but it's never guaranteed. But I'm delighted that we convinced the shareholders uh, to stick with us uh, and use the fantastic skills that we have here for that first BEV, which we're very proud of. And the announcement was part of a, a wider £2.5 billion investment. Where's the money coming from and what does that money buy you? So, um, good question. I think, first of all, and the most important thing for us is all of that investment comes from our own cash flow. Uh, we won't borrow. We won't go into uh, deficit in cash uh, to fund this. We'll do it from our own cash flow and reserves. Um, also, in terms of where it goes, uh, let's be honest, cars cost a lot more to develop than infrastructure. So I would estimate about 15 to 20% of that sum will go into the site. We've already spent a lot to get some of the administrative uh, and test facilities completely rebuilt now, but we've got a big program of site investment. I'll touch on that in a second. But uh, the rest, 80% or so, 85% will be on products. Um, and each car, as we know, is a significant cost. It's a four to five year development program. And um, yeah, that's how it all totals up to two and a half billion. Um, Adrian, you, you mentioned that uh, um, in, in a story we've already done in Autocar that, that uh, there's a relationship under the skin with uh, VW Group models. Could you talk about when the GT came out, the current GT came out, you talked about um, what a boon it was to be have input into the beginnings of that car. Could, could you talk about the same? Have you had the same ground floor involvement? Um, I would say, without exaggeration, that for the new generation of cars, Bentley has never been in a better position when it comes to technology. And, and why do I say this? Um, you'll remember the figures, Steve. I, I've been very open with them. Uh, when we first did the GT back in 2003, um, the, the, the bodywork, the body in white, as we call it, was absolutely unique. There were no parts from any other car in the group. But some of the key systems, like subframes and uh, drive systems, um, air conditioning systems, etc. we took from the group. But we took them from products that were already developed. So we then had to modify 
so much to make them work for a 200 miles an hour four-wheel drive coupe for Bentley, the breakthrough car, that we ended up with less than 20% of the components coming from the group. And the rest was highly complex to create and or up upgrade. With the new generation of electric cars, the architecture, the, the kit of technologies at different scales, it's not even finished for the top end cars. So we've been able to get all of our requirements for the cars that we've already scoped technically into the development of the architecture so we don't have to modify them when they come. So even though we'll only use those parts in the main, we'll be the main user of these heavy duty special parts, they've been done at the same time as the actual technologies. And this is a huge advantage and it liberates us. It gets our investment efficiency to be a lot stronger, but more importantly, all the things that are visible, skin on the outside, full interior, and the bentliness of the way it drives and handles, uh, as with the current cars, that will all be our work, but from a much better technical basis. Does that allow you um, sort of new stuff? I can remember when the GT changed, you, could, you were suddenly able to use um, different tire sizes and bigger brakes and things like that. Is that, is that the same story? Not just that. I think if you go back um, luxury cars over the past 20 years, they've gone from um, exotic brands with exciting designs and engines and a little bit of technology to today already with the Flying Spur, the GT and the Bentayga, where you no longer step down in technology when you step up from the top of premium. So connected car, infotainment systems, navigation, uh, connectivity in terms of your, your phones and the use of the vehicle, et cetera. So as we move forward, we will be absolutely at the cutting edge of all of those technologies. And whilst our customers, because we've already checked, aren't looking for autonomous as a primary technology straight away, they are looking for BEVs, but they still want to drive them we will also have the, the leading edge of autonomous capability when we get to this next generation. So I think just like you saw a step change in technology from the previous generation GTs and Flying Spur to the current, there will be an even bigger step to that next generation. Wow. Could, could you say a little bit about um, the style of this vehicle? We've heard, I've seen a story that says that it's an SUV and I've seen another story, our own, that says it's a high riding saloon car. Could you clear up the problem, clear up the uh, conjecture? Yeah, in about three years' time, <laughs> we'll let is, you drive it. Is it a high-riding something? It's not, that we, it's not that we haven't made our minds up. It's that um, I'm not just talking to you, uh, I'm talking to all of your listeners and the competition. And what I would say, being absolutely straight, is that it is an incremental product. So it will exist alongside our current cars, Yes, it's got an electric powertrain, uh, but we're trying to um, shape a segment uh, and create a game changer, not just an electric version of what we already have. Uh, I was, share... Sorry. sorry. I, I was trying to think about um, what I would do in your position, and I think I would have an incremental model for the very for, for the reason that I would probably have to come up with a new price and I wouldn't want it to be uh, compared with anything I make already. Can you talk to us a bit about how we, how it will be priced against an equivalent ICE car? Um, well, I think if we take a step sideways, but I'll kind of answer your question because I'm not going to give you the pricing yet either, nor the volume, if that's the next one. Uh, <laughs> um, 
you know, we exited the, the Molzan business um, well, about a year ago, actually. Uh, and the Molzan, even though it wasn't the highest volume sale car that Bentley created, it was a segment and a car of status, let's say, for its period, um, which was iconic for the brand with the 6.75 litre engine, etc. So um, as we look at the brand today, all of our products are in a very tight price band. So I can say that we'd like to either go up or down in order to exploit the brand further in terms of its potential. Um, so watch this space. I can think of one direction, but not the other. Okay, good. <laughs> You, men you mentioned the Melsan there, um, with its engine as a point of difference. What will be the, the points of difference in electric Bentleys uh, versus both the competition and perhaps the increased amount of shared componentry um, with electric cars across the Volkswagen Group? Uh, good question. And believe me, we've thought about this intensively. And I think, first of all, on the hardware level, um, i.e. the body, the interior, the substance, the, the features within the vehicle, even though we're already part of the group and have been for 24 years now, isn't it? Gosh, uh, nearly quarter of a century. Wow. Um, if you jump into Bentley, I mean, you've picked out a few stalks and switches that you could look at without certain treatment on them and see that they come from another product. But that is it. I mean, the rest of it is, is pure Bentley magic. And if you look at our interiors, not just against the group products, but look at them against competition. Uh, I mean, the, the effort that we go to, to choose the materials, to design the way they go together, the design, the aesthetics of them, but also the comfort and the features that we apply in our vehicles, um, we do believe we stand apart. I can guarantee that with a future generation of electric cars, just like you've seen an, a, a step change in craftsmanship and the way we integrate technology from the rotating dash to other features, we will take another leap forward when we come to electric vehicles. So on the hardware, the design will be distinctive. It will be absolutely Bentley, but more progressive than maybe some of our current designs. The interior will be more um, crafted, but also where we will blend craftsmanship and digital in an even more intelligent way than we have with the current cars, because we can. When it comes down to powertrain, the reason, part of the reason that we've waited until the mid of this decade to launch the first battery, battery electric vehicle is that we, we don't want to build small cars. You know, Bentleys um, operate for, for our customers in a certain part of their life and lifestyle. And we, we had to wait until we got the right battery technology. So our battery technology will be at the top end in terms of kilowatt hours and power density of anything that's out there, not in terms of absolute screaming performance, like a Rimac, for example, but a typical Bentley driving experience. And, you know, I've used this phrase before, even in our biggest engine, we only have 12 cylinders. In our batteries, we'll have nearly 2000 cells and they can be managed just like a combustion chamber can. So we can tailor the drive experience to be effortless, linear progression of power, refined, comfortable, and have that duality of being able to relax and enjoy it when you want to, anybody can drive it, through to enjoyment and performance on the exhilaration end, on demand. And that's always been Bentley and it will be in the future. So I've got no worries about being able to differentiate with exterior design, with interior quality design and technology, and deliver a refined 
carpet ride type of Bentley experience that can flick to an exhilarating feel at the touch of a button and the flick of the pedal. And that craftsmanship um, comes back to crew. How important is crew to Bentley? And could you maybe discuss the process of, of, of how the car will be will be built in crew? Is it, is it the finishing of the car? Is it the whole body of the car? So um, I think, first of all, how important is crew to Bentley? Uh, and how important is Bentley to crew as well? Um, 75 years we've been here. And we have a, a group of people, four and a half thousand of them, that are at the peak of the skills in our industry, um, better than most suppliers out there, because we've kept wood, leather, and trim as a core competence. Um, that will continue for the future. You know, if we're gonna keep leadership in that space, those skills cannot be attained overnight. And we see a great advantage of that being here. But it's not just that. Um, if you're investing the kind of money that our customers do in buying a Bentley, it has to be authentic. It has to come from Bentley. So whilst we're always in competition for certain parts of the process of production with group facilities, we will always fight to have the maximum here. So um, I'll answer the second part of the question in two ways. First of all, um, today, we don't press steel here. We don't rivet or weld here but we do paint and do full assembly. So in the future, that model, we intend to do the same. We don't envisage at this stage, uh, a sheet metal and body shop on site. We do envisage a brand new state of the art paint shop with even more flexibility than the 63 colors plus paint to sample that we do today. And in a much more efficient uh, way than we can today with a, a relatively old facility. So paint shop will be a big investment for us. What we're also doing now, and I'd love you to come and see the site at some stage, is we're we've built on the opposite side of Pims Lane, um, three facilities, two offices and an emission center. And they're finished. I'm actually in it right now, the new office. What we're also putting on here is the engineering prototype workshop and the launch quality center, where we pre-trial production before it goes into the factory. And by doing that, we empty a hall on the main site, which is as big as the current assembly hall, which built our 14,500 cars last year. It will be totally empty. We'll then completely renovate that hall and put the new production system, floor mounted, autonomous guided production trolleys and supplier components into that new hall. And we've separated the development of that site, part of the site, by moving all the non-industrial activity off as quickly as we can. So um, what will happen? The bodies will come in, we will paint them, and we'll go through the same added value process that we do today, which is way more than any other UK luxury manufacturer. And because the cost is effective, the quality is unbeatable, and it makes Bentley absolutely authentic. Can you, you're very good on on the you're very bullish always about the 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 future of the super luxury car market can you can you talk about it a bit more you know this car is going to require quite a lot of buyers around the world but the, are these people merrily developing they're they're all making money still and the demand is is strong 
It's, it's interesting. The, if you look at the number of people that could afford luxury cars compared with the number that actually buy them, you would say the growth potential is so big, you would not know where to start. So what do I mean by this? I'll give you two reference points and two figures for each reference point, if I may. So you recall, Steve, when the GT was launched back in 2003, there were at that point, according to this Credit Suisse high net worth individual analysis that was done at that time in the early 2000s, there were 6 million people on earth, 6 million, with more than $1 million free floating into stocks, equities, and other non-property, non-private investments, just a million slushing around dollars. Um, today, that figure is close to 17 million, so it's trebled. If I go back to 2003, the car market for cars in the GT price range and the Flying Spur and the Bentayga, that sort of the equivalent then of 110 to 150,000, now 150 to 200,000 pounds, there were three and a half thousand cars sold world, worldwide then in that price bracket. Last year, it was about 68,000. Wow. And don't forget, in that three and a half thousand segment, we targeted to sell 10, and we did in five years. So even then, we couldn't guarantee that it was going to work. But the number of people and the growth in, in high net worth individuals, um, it's headed towards 20 million people from six in 2003 within the next five years. Wow. Now, obviously, even with 20 million people, 16, 18 today, only 70, 75,000 people are buying cars in that price bracket because not everybody wants to buy a luxury car. But we are seeing a steady and an inexorable rise in that demand, and we expect that to continue. And with, with you know, zero emission tailpipe cars, with a totally sustainable supply chain, we think it could, could give another push and attract a new generation of buyers to luxury that don't associate themselves with 12-cylinder engines or raunchy V8s and, and high performance um, in the traditional sense. So we think there is a value shift and we want to be at the front of it, not the back of it. Mm, interesting. How, how did the, the concept for the incremental model how was it arrived at? Was it, there must have been, you must have looked at the market. Did, did you do research among existing Bentley buyers? How do you decide what kind of incremental model to, to, to build? Um, yeah, it's a similar process, but nowadays it's really um, much more efficient than when we were doing the, the breakthrough in the early 2000s. So I'll give you one example. We've got a thing called the Bentley Network app. So if you're a customer, uh, you can download the app, log on, chassis number, and all your credentials, we check, and then you're in. And in that app, uh, you can do all kinds of things. It's nothing to do with um, remote locking or navigation or, or that kind of functional thing. That's already in the connected car app. This app is about connecting people from a lifestyle point of view. So if someone's going to a city they've never been to in a country they've never visited, they will go onto the app, say, I'm going to so-and-so, anybody out there got any tips about hotels, restaurants, places to go see, things to do, etc. cetera. Um, it's fascinating. There's 14,000 uh, people registered. There's 6,000 active users. We engage with those people. So for example, when we did the uh, Bentega speed launch 
in Anglesey virtually in the rain during lockdown or into lockdown. It wasn't a party. Um, it was a work event. Um, we also did uh, media activity, two different lots of media for different time zones, and then a customer event at the end where they could log in and have a preview of the launch before it went uh, global. What we can also do is ask them what they think. So we're constantly seeking opinions. Um, would you consider an electric car in the next five years? What are the key uh, factors for you in adoption of electric vehicles in terms of charging, um, safety of charging systems, et cetera, access to them, blah, blah, blah. So we get all this feedback. So from that piece of work, we get the base data, but we then also do product clinics. So we had a clear view of segmentation wise, which body style, which price point we think would fit with Bentley and be a niche and a, an opportunity for us to develop with lowest possible impact on the current range of cars. So maximum growth with minimum self damage as it were. And then we tested it with those people and then we tested it in formal clinics, 1500 people, uh, three continents, US, Europe, China, and we get our feedback both on the design, the positioning, the pricing, and the fit to the brand. Um, and so we've plumbed for what we're going for. And we're well down the track of that now. We know fully what the technology will be. The design, I would say, is 80 to 85% finished in terms of finessing. Um, interiors, closer to 95%, I guess, but there's a few things on the outside that we're working on uh, to improve further. But um, no, it's, it's a mature program that gets into development and delivery phase um, by the middle of this year. Have you driven a prototype yet? Um, no. Oh, damn it. I was going to ask test. you for a quick road test. No. Well, as soon as you've got one, you'll have one. Oh, excellent. Adrian, physical luxury that we, we know now, look, feel, touch in the kind of old world is, is a, a bit easier to, to you know, articulate and feel. In the digital world, um, of luxury how do you make software luxurious how do you make a website luxurious how do you make charging a car a luxurious experience um i don't want to give the full game away <laughs> um but i'll i'll give you a little bit of a taster um when i look at our customers they are quite extraordinary if you look at their achievements their their wealth and their, quite often their humbleness as well. I wouldn't say humility, but um, they're very successful people that enjoy what they enjoy and they've experienced lots of things. Um, the, one of the regular feedbacks that we get is that the name audio system in our cars, for many of them, is the best sound system that they've ever heard in or out of a car. Now, part of that is because the cars are so well trimmed, it's like a sound cabin and the power and the clarity and the reproduction through that system is phenomenal. But the reason I say this is that we have a mission on what we call five usage cases um, to have not just the best sound experience, but the best other experiences in the car. Um, and that's luxury. Now, for example, I'll give you just one more. Um, I'm sitting on a stool in my office, elevated desk, with a little portable camera and a laptop and we're having a teleconference or video conference. Um, imagine that the best place in the world that you could have this meeting is from your Bentley.
that's one of the uses, uses cases. And as autonomous kicks in, and as people can do more when they're in the car, even if they're being chauffeured by a real chauffeur or a, a digital one, then we want to take the experience in the car to a completely different level. So it's, it's not about the, the look, the aesthetics of the way we do the icons on the screen. It's about the functionality that we can build in. And we've got five fields of activity that we want to lead in. And the good thing about software, it's not as expensive as hardware, especially in this space. Uh, so you have to wait and see. But that's, that's where we're heading. When it comes to char charging, um, I mean, we know, uh, if you look at the UK as a, as a case study, um, all the research says that about 40% of UK drivers do not have regular access to off-street um, secure parking, uh, which means the 60% do, being a glass half full kind of person. And if you look at the demographics of our customers, both the work, the leisure and the living arrangements, they will be most likely in the 60%. And if you look at the luxury sector, it's probably a lot more than 60% and have access to their own drive, own double garage, quadruple garage, and access at work to charge as well. And let's face it, we all know, unless you're doing long distance journeys where you need transient charging, you charge an electric vehicle up, and most people's mileage would suggest you don't need to charge it again for a week with the average journeys and the average mileage of range that's available today, let alone what's gonna come in the middle to the end of this decade. So what we're working on is together with the group, but also with some other startups, is solutions where at home, we can get higher powered charging, but not super fast charges like you get on the motorway, because that's much higher risk uh, in terms of house installation, but higher rates of charging at home, and hands-free charging, whether that's inductive or robotic uh, connected. And all of these things can be done at relatively low cost with a bit of innovation and they can take the hassle away. And whereas inductive charging five years ago, uh, the efficiency of it was so low um, that most people gave up on even the idea of it. We now, as long as you can be very precise and you can be with both autonomous parking and with uh, autonomous guided induction pads. So you make it very precise and close the gap to the optimum level. Uh, you can get 90 plus percent efficiency compared with a plug. Mm. 95 is feasible. So it's these kind of things where we can create another opportunity for the customer with collaborative partners uh, and bring that to the market. Um, one of the things we hear about the EV age is that there's going to have to be <clears throat> new and extra emphasis on low weight and aerodynamics, you know, sophisticated aerodynamics. Is the, are we going to see a step change in the new car? And, and would that be a reason for having a, a, a separate model? Um, yeah, I mean, the design, first of all, it will look like a Bentley, feel like a Bentley, go like a Bentley. But absolutely, the overall aero efficiency will be a step change from our current cars. Has Can you quantify a little bit? Not at this stage, but it will be, what, from what we can see today, from what's out there and what's coming, amongst the best, no question. It has to be. And it's because of a, an inherent problem with batteries today, which is they are hugely penalizing on the way to the vehicle. I mean, I've quoted before, 
from my old firm, 700 kilos um, for a 90 to 100 watt, kilowatt hour battery is not extreme. That's about what they are. Mm. Um, so you, there's, there's not enough, well, it's very difficult <laughs> to get weight out of the car in the rest of the vehicle uh, to compensate for that amount of powertrain malice that you get on, on weight. Sure. So you, you have to, we will have to um, make every step that we possibly can, and we are, to lightweight the rest of the vehicle. We still want to have substance, still high integrity materials, but we're going to have to do it differently. I'll, I'll give you a great example. Um, it's shocking, really, when you think of Mulzan, that the waste rails, the wood on the tops of the doors, that was covered in walnut, beautiful things, the substrate for that veneer was CNC machined solid cherry wood from a block that was about 100 mil by 60 mil and then coated with veneer. We now have an aluminium alloy, alloy substrate for the real veneers that we use and it's a fraction of the weight. Now as we move forward we'll use composite substrates for those same things. So you still get the touch and feel of solidity, uh, but the, the mass, it just in wood, yeah. will be 80 plus percent reduced compared with previous cars. So we've got to look at everything in the vehicle, um, and we will. There was talk about um, the initial couple of models having a one kind of powertrain or, or, or battery, and then um, the potential for, for later technology to be retro applied. Are we talking about solid state batteries here? So I'll, I'll be clear about, uh, yes, uh, but I'll be clear about the evolution or clearer. Um, between the first BEV in 25 and the last BEV by 2030, we absolutely expect to see an improvement uh, in the cells as a result of the technology roadmap that we can see. So they, it won't be radical, but they will improve as we do subsequent launches. The, the key question is solid state batteries. When will they be industrialized and commercially available? Because we believe they are one of the game changers in battery technology. And why? Because they're not combustible, unlike lithium ion can be. But lithium ion is safe because of the amount of protection that's put around it. And the legislation is making it sure that there's zero chance of combustion in the vehicle. And that will be the case when we launch our cars. So it is safe, but the weight penalty, if you took all the protection out of the lithium ion battery, that this compensates for that, um, that's where you get the 30% weight saving that you will get with solid state. Oh, really? It's just protection. But with solid state, there's also a challenge with the expansion and contraction of the cells um, over a long, you know, a long unit of one and a half meter long battery. You don't need a lot of expansion in each of the little plates to create a problem in terms of the dimension of the, the battery itself. So cooling is the real challenge, uh, but the technology is there. It's managing these secondary issues and industrializing it is the real issue. So we will launch in 25 with absolute top-end battery performance and it will give parity let's say with the usability of one of our conventional combustion engine cars today and then 
there'll be small increments as we move forward and anything we can do to improve subsequent models and facelifts, et cetera, we will do. But there won't be a step change until we get to solid state. And we'll have to watch this space as to when that comes. That's our ambition, but there's no clear commitment or roadmap that we've publicly confirmed to today. So you haven't got a date. Other people, there's a variety of dates around the place. Yeah, we've got indication. We're optimistic, but the level of maturity is such that every technology we look at, we give it a, a maturity rating, which is kind of scientifically calculated as to which level of samples and tests have been done and how long it's going to take to prove and validate before it gets to market. And we've got more than 50% confident before the end of the decade, but not more than 80%. I see. So watch this space. Yes. Um, as you sit here planning for, for what is a, going to be an extraordinary five years, isn't it? Um, how much do you know about the way the demand will ebb and flow, as it were? You, you know, do you, do you just have to build in a huge amount of flexibility in the production system for five years, or, or can you know more than we think about what the demand is? I think the question's a good one because no one knows. Um, I don't think even the customers yet know because they don't know uh, how they'll react until they see yeah. what's available. But I think the, if we just take a, a look at what's happening today with hybrid. Um, so Bentega hybrid, it wasn't available for the full year in 2021, but it was still 20% of our Bentega sales. And why is that the case? As you're well aware, a lot of our customers drive our cars every day. They're not track day cars. They're not weekend or special occasion cars. They are actually, but not only that, they use them as a, a daily tour. So for a lot of people in cities that are doing short journeys, the hybrid is a great solution. If you're constantly doing long journeys, they may be not the optimum solution for now. So we think hybridization is a good indication of what's gonna happen with the battery electric vehicles. And the beauty is that in 2025, we launched the first car, so if you divided five cars by 100%, even if only 20% of customers that currently enjoy a Bentley could make the switch to BEV, then that would fulfill our expectations. So this is not a big risk. If, if we're going in one year, canceling all combustion engine vehicles and only selling battery electric vehicles, that would be a huge risk. So I'm confident that the hybrid approach is working. When we get to 24, we'll only sell hybrids. So the GTs will be hybridized as well. We've, we've made that public too. And they will be phenomenal. Watch this space. Um, and straight after that, we launched the first battery electric vehicle. So the next eight years, you can buy W12s now and speeds and they are flying away, if you pardon the expression. Um, you can already buy V6 hybrids in Flying Spur and Bentayga. You'll soon only be able to buy hybrids. So we'll celebrate the end of pure combustion. We'll absolutely create game-changing hybrid cars in the middle of the period. And then we have a step-by-step -step approach to battery electric. And we'll still sell uh, this super hybrid by the end of the decade. Uh, we're not going to turn it off. So it's not a step change. It's a considered transition. Is it risky? Yes. 
But if I look at the number of countries and cities that have already stated they're banning the registration of new combustion engine vehicles by 2030, it's a safe bet. Yeah. A global strategy for that agent so we hear that what about russia the emirates for for combustion engines after the 2030 day that that that's a, a global strategy you've got there absolutely i mean this is a, a big decision for us uh, as you rightly say excuse me top me up water uh, it was a big decision for us but the the simple facts are that if we look at the total number of countries cities that will only allow the registration of electric vehicles it's way more than 65% of our sales, closer to 70, as it stands today, if nobody else changes. So would you, um, we can't carry on with both forever. Would you take the, the leap of faith to be able to establish the brand as a battery electric vehicle brand in 60, 65% of markets? And then with the power of the product, the infotainment, the world-class sound and other features that we'll put inside, the range similar to a combustion vehicle and performance way better than a combustion engine Bentley today. Can we convert more of those people that aren't mandated to buy electric vehicles in those countries where uh, the legislation is behind Europe and UK and most of the US? Uh, we thought that was a fair gamble. We've had a fair few questions come in. Thank you everyone for sending that in. And just to summarize a, a couple together, Samuel Rolt, Paul Markwick around um, hydrogen and, and synthetic fuels and um, specifically on the latter. Do, do you think that the ship has sailed a bit for the for that? Is electric vehicles already won won the race even before widespread adoption? Or do you see them come, synthetic fuels, hydrogen being part of the conversation? I think if you um, I, I talked about technology roadmap, it sounds sophisticated, but it's very simple. Just list out all the things that you could do, hydrogen solid state batteries, fuel cells, sorry, hydrogen fuel cells, solid state batteries, nuclear powered cars. I've said it before for a laugh, but who knows? Um, if you look at the maturity of those technologies and when they can be fed into the market, industrialized, certified and validated and safe, then hydrogen, absolutely, if you look at it within a vehicle, it's a viable option, definitely. But where do you get it from? You have to produce it. And to produce it, you need huge amounts of energy. And if that energy isn't renewable energy, then burning fossil fuels to create another product to then burn in an engine is worse than making oil. So hydrogen only works if it's made with renewables. And then there's the dilemma, ethical and environmental, that if the whole system isn't renewable energy, but you use renewable energy for production of hydrogen, then you're just substituting that from the core energy supply. So really for hydrogen to work from a total environmental point of view, um, the whole energy system needs to be green and then you need to overproduce to create other fuels, if that makes sense. It does. And I a couple of questions, sorry, on, on the on the UK industry specifically. I think it was 26% of uh, new car sales in December were, were battery electric vehicles. Do you think that was a bit of a one-off or, or where it's going and is only going to increase? And also, if you, I'm sure you, you hear many things in, in the corridors of power in discussion with, with governments around the world. How, how are we going to be paying our, our taxes on our cars um, in the future when it's electric? 
I, I think the rate of change, I, I honestly believe we're in the, 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 the real inflection point period for battery electric vehicles. It, Mark, I'll just go back and, and say, I'm not against hydrogen, but it's not, it doesn't seem viable in the near term. So battery electric vehicles, zero total carbon neutral cars, carbon neutral supply chain, carbon neutral tailpipes. For me, that is without question, the next 10 to 15 years, the biggest chance we've got to fundamentally decarbonize mobility for the masses, full stop. Everything else, bring it on, put it on the roadmap, and one day for certain uses like trucks, for example, it could make sense, but all of these things will have their time when everything comes together. When it comes to customer adoption, you're right. I mean, um, I've made no secret about the fact I'm a car addict. I buy way too many and change them on a regular basis. Um, my current runabout, which my daughter uses, is a Fiat 500 electric. I know I shouldn't promote the competition, but we don't compete too much with Fiat nowadays. Um, it costs something like five or six euros to fill it up at home. Ish. Yeah. Now, if you compare that with the Abarth that she had before, which would cost 45 to 50 euros to fill it up, um, even though the cost of acquisition of the BEV is more than a conventional engine vehicle, over the lifetime, you know, when you're paying five pounds a charge once a week instead of 50 once a week, it makes a big difference to people. Um, so I believe that there's more um, interest in electric vehicles. There's more product offerings. You look at what we as a group have done and the commitments that we have made, not just to cars, but also to charging infrastructure around the world. So consumers are getting more confident in their ability to use them, charge them, run them, uh, the quality of them. Um, so, yeah, I think it's just going to continue. And in terms of taxing them, um, I mean, obviously, to get the industry sorry, to, to match the industry's production of vehicles, there needs to be uh, initiative to incentivize customers to make that switch early because they are more expensive in the early days. But the cost of battery electric, electric vehicles is coming down. There are ever um, cheaper versions becoming available. Um, and at some point, the, the, the all governments will have to back off incentives. The danger is if you back off too fast, or you're on off and you're not predictable, then it completely confuses consumers. And if I look back to the period with the shift from diesel to petrol hybrid and then to BEV, we've, for the last four or five years, we've really confused customers as to what is the right thing to do. I mean, the number of friends, educated people that buy premium cars and some luxury cars, you know, if you ever meet them, they say, what do I buy? You know, he's the diesel, the devil, um, because for me, it works for the, the way I use the car. And there's, there's so much confusion with people and not just in the UK. I think the clarity of message about Bev being the, the immediate future um, it can work for most customers. I think that's the key message, but it's not a binary switch. Can I ask you about your attitude to motorsport? Uh, Bentley has had a both your attitude and Bentley's attitude. Bentley's had um, some pretty productive brushes of motorsport, but some pretty lengthy periods while not being in it. What, what, what's the plan? Um, I mean, personal attitude to motorsport is, um, I love it um, to watch. I'd love to be able to do it more, but um, 
I don't. Maybe this year, Steve, I'll, I'll tell you something we're working on. Uh, on the classic side, by the way, not, not proper racing. Sounds good. Um, but the, uh, if you look at Bentley Racing, I mean, uh, I was a big advocate uh, and drove the program back in the early 2000s when I was here first time around. And, and for me, if you're going to go racing, it's got to do two things. One, it's got to have global reach. And two, it's got to be the best of breed. Um, there is a third option, which is um, supporting customers to enjoy the brand in a different way, like GT3 racing, which we've done. But for the factory to really be serious, us as a brand to be serious about racing, it's got to be world-class racing. Um, otherwise, we're just spending money with no global platform. And I know we can't quantify it in advertising terms, but it's got to have global reach. And then you can put a lot of energy into activating that with customers and partners, and it becomes a significant marketing initiative and brand building initiative. And our GT3 program that we stopped just over a year ago was none of those things, um, which is why we've stopped it. Would we ever go back to racing? Possibly. There's no firm plan to do so. We're constantly, we're still on uh, constant contact with all the organizers of the major series around the world, um, just to keep abreast of exactly what's going on. And I've said it before publicly and I'll say it again. For me, the next breakthrough is electric endurance racing. Formula E is great. Uh, it's innovative in the way it's done in, in cities, etc. But for me, authentic endurance racing with electric powertrains, that's something that as a brand, I think it would be great if we can be the, at the forefront of that. Um, and personally, I'd love to be able to get back, back into that space. The challenge, of course, at the moment is there's no immediate solution for long distance electric racing, but there's a lot of work being done on it. So watch this space. No plans, but a lot of investigation. So you think that I've not picked up on this, that, 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 uh, that long, sort of longer distance battery powered racing is possible that isn't Formula E. That requires enormous change in battery technology, doesn't it? Or change of batteries during the race, or change of cars and change okay. of batteries, so, or, or fast charging. I mean, the pit stop, instead of being you know, three seconds, it could be how, quick, how much quicker than 15 minutes can you fill the battery up? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. I don't know, but there's, if you just take uh, the problems that stop us doing long distance, I'm not saying 24 hours, but six to 12, let's say, yeah. um, with innovative solutions for charging or battery switching or car switching, um, it's possible. Yeah, interesting. Um, just talking about the, the, the new EV um, generation, I mean, we, we, you've already mentioned that, that uh, you're going to have to be careful, extremely careful of weight and the aero is going to take another step forward. Is that to say that beyond 2030, though, Bentleys will change in proportions. I mean, I'm sure you'll assure us that they're still Bentleys, but are they going to change meaningfully in, in, in proportions? Um, Wheelbase, you know, frontal area, um, yeah. all that long tails, perhaps you know, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. So I've seen the initial designs that are all analyzed from an aero perspective and, and overall efficiency expect, uh, perspective. Um, and some of them, so we, all five we've got ideas for and models of. 
And I was surprised at how, um, I wouldn't say conventional, uh, but uh, familiar some of the proportions are. We don't have to radically change, uh, or even if you do, you can hide it <laughs> with clever design. So we're not gonna make smaller wheelbase cars. That's not uh, the plan. Um, we'd like to make them a little bit narrower to make them more usable in more places because obviously our cars are currently circa two meters wide. Um, most places, parking places are about 2.1 meters wide or I don't know what they are, but they feel tight when you pull into them. Sure. Um, but no, the overall proportions of the vehicle, we can get very low drag, very high efficiency with clever aero aids um, and still get a car that looks of status stance and proportions and absolutely like a Bentley. Um, so no, I, I don't see any radical uh, change, but when you look closely, um, you'll see what we've done. You don't think that there's a, there's a case for, for actually signaling the new era with, through styling? Um, we will do that. Uh, certainly before we launch the first series production car, we'll certainly give some um, conceptual clues of where we're heading. Um, it's EXP 100 is not the direction in terms of a supersized coupe. Um, I'll, I'll make that one clear as well. Um, but we will do something beyond that. That was more of a technology and materials statement about the vision and how we want to achieve carbon neutrality and sustainable materials. So we'll, we'll next do it more of a design-based message uh, and you can expect to see that well before the car itself, but I can't declare when just yet. And, um, you would be forgiven for being pretty obsessed with the next sort of seven to eight years, but if you've got a view on where then for Bentley, I mean, is, is 14,000 a year company, is that a good size? Or, you know, it sounds as though if you made 20, they'd still be exclusive. Um, yeah. I'll go back to this evolution of the, the target group, the number of people, just by this single measure, um, that are defined as net worth, high net worth or ultra high net worth individuals. Um, this number is going up exponentially. And, and if you go back to 2006, seven, when we first hit 10,000 sales, back then uh, we, we sold 10,000 and the total market was 15. Um, so what we did last year is almost as big as the total price segment back in 2007. Um, but our share was 66%. And this year it's 20%-ish, you know, that specific target uh, price band that we talk. Yeah. So do we have room to grow even in the current market? Yes, we do. But we have one slight problem and it's called capacity. Uh, we already run four shifts in our paint shop. It, it can't operate another minute. And we want to paint our cars because our paint finish, like the interiors, is the benchmark. Well, I knew there's some pretty good competition now, isn't there? I mean, you know, if McLaren make four or 5,000 cars a year, that sort of thing. I know yeah. they're not strictly in your market, but they, they're attracting that money, aren't they? Absolutely. But it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? When you think, you know, we launched Bentayga before I got here, but maybe six years ago, seven, almost seven years ago, um, and sold about four, four and a half thousand cars. 
since then, there's been the Urus, the DBX, and a G-Wagon that came out of nowhere, all of them doing similar volumes to where we were doing at the beginning, or more. And last year, we did nearly 8,000. So it just shows that the segment isn't mature, and there's still growth potential with current products in the current segments. But what I am saying is that the one of our challenges now is that we have a capacity constraint uh, on bodies and paint. So it's unlikely that you'll see, with the current generation of cars, a significant lift. Uh, I'm not saying there's no more room at all for growth, because we've got some ideas, um, but it's not anywhere near 20,000. Now, when you get to that beyond 2030, and I don't know how big the segment will be, but if we say that the number of people with the disposable income sufficient to buy one of our products or a competitor's, and our products are then sustainable, carbon neutral, and appealing to a next generation of luxury consumers, who knows? I think the, the potential for Bentley is more than we've seen historically, in the, even in the past 19 years, but it will require yeah, that, that step change in product. And don't forget the first bev is an incremental car, so. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it, it's just looking at the, at the trajectory of the company, it does seem as though your the graph you're drawing is is regardless of any glitch caused by the conversion to EV. You don't you don't see it as a problem. Um, again, because the line goes over eight years, um, is there a risk? Yes, there is, Steve. Absolutely. If it was over two years, I would be greyer than I am now, and now I'm totally grey. So I'd probably be hair falling out as well um you think back eight years and what's changed try and imagine the next eight years and what will change i i think we've reached the inflection point period um between now and the mid-20s um i don't think bevs will be seen as a risk for customers i think they'll be seen as um a credible option for some of my mobility needs and I'll say again, our customers, most of them drive our cars every day. And for those people, a BEV, especially if they're living in cities, which many of them are, it's a great solution with all the, the tax benefits that they will get, despite any incentives that the government may offer, yeah, governments yeah. may offer, they'll still get tax benefits, uh, incentives, and um, a much lower cost of running it on a daily basis. And as you've said, the, the actual behaviour of those cars is very... Bentley-like, isn't it? You know, refined and smooth and yeah, and all the rest. Adrian, you, you've, you've hinted at it a bit there, but but last year for Bentley what was a record year for yourselves. It's been a busy year for you, you already in, in announcing pits. How proud are you at success? How did you do it? And how did you do it in the context of Brexit, lest we forget, and uh, and obviously COVID, year two of COVID? Yeah, um, they say pride comes before the fall. Um, I see performance as performance um don't get me wrong do i feel great about 2021 yes um i'd have felt greater had that happened in 2020 which we were set up to do before covid hit because then we hadn't got the covid bonus in terms of demand which has happened significantly so everybody's having the best years of their lives at the moment but we could have done that in 2020 so i'm um, I'm not bitter about that, but the, um, the the performance and the capability of this team 
it's it's thanks to that that we've come from where we've been, got through COVID, and deliver this outstanding result. So I'm I'm delighted that we've demonstrated the power of Bentley, uh, the capability of the team here. Uh, the volume isn't the issue for me. It's the ability to generate the right products, attract enormous amounts of customers that are happy with what they get and still have a head of steam going forward so that we can invest in the future. I'll give you one other statistic, which is um, even incredible. For me, it's incredible. So we started 2021 with the biggest order bank that we've ever had. And that includes 2003 when we launched the first GT. And bearing in mind, we pre-marketed that for three years. So we started with a record order bank. We went through the year and we grew by 31%. By the end of the year, the 1st of Jan this year, we had 30% more orders than we had on the 1st of January, 2021. 30% more. So that means we not only grew 30%, the order intake rate was 30% above that. So as I sit here today, um, you know, I've been through three major recessions. I know how quickly things can go off. <laughs> so pride is one thing, but being alert and sensitive to the fact that the world is not a linear growth line, as Steve alluded to a second ago, anything can happen. The reason for the right-sizing and restructuring of the company and for all the work we've done on the finances is that it makes us more robust. We brought our break-even point down massively so we could literally take now a market drop and still not suffer the pain that we suffered three, four years ago when we had the WLTP problems. So um, there's no guarantees of future success. Previous performance doesn't guarantee forward. But we've now got the most powerful product range in terms of um, technology, craftsmanship, performance and brand appeal, a restructured business, a completely different business model, profit generation and cash generation and a forward plan that, that I'm proud of. But I'll only be proud when those products are developed, the first ones delivered and we start to see that shift towards sustainable carbon neutral Bentley by 2030 that's an immovable force. Uh, and hopefully our customers will come with us at the rate that they've already said and that we need to be the leader and be sustainable. Time for one very last question. Um, Adrian, thank you for giving us an hour of your time. We're, we're very grateful for it. Um, completely different tact. So micro-mobility, something we're seeing even some of your luxury rivals go into, Bugatti e-scooters. Possible for a Bentley e-scooter one day? It's not on the cards, but never say never. We said never an SUV and never a diesel at one time, but look what happened. <laughs> thank you, Adrian. Um, sadly, that is it. We are we are out of time. Adrian, thank you so much uh, for your time today. It's been a fascinating discussion. Um, good luck with all your Beyond 100 plans at Bentley. Thank you, Steve, as well, for joining us. Uh, thank you all, everyone, for, for listening and watching sending in so many of your questions we always get a bit overwhelmed by how many they are um but hopefully uh, we answered plenty through through uh, the questions today and um, we'll be back uh, this time next month for for a webinar around the agency model um in the retail world so please do join us then um thank you very much and see you soon thank you mark steve